Our Old Testament reading is a challenging one. Jeremiah was operating in the decades around 600 BC, and his task was to give some hard and uncompromising messages about the spiritual state of God's people. He would later give some wonderful messages of hope and a future, some of which we hear every year in the covenant service. But that comes later in his book. And for now, he addresses the waywardness of the people in this reading from Jeremiah chapter 2. The reading is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and from the New International Version. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Lord did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own systems, broken systems that cannot hold water. Between school and university, I had a job for about nine months in the post room of forget-me-not greeting cards in southwest London. And I got to see all sorts of greeting cards. And one of the humorous ones I remember from that time said, it's your birthday and for your present, I couldn't decide between a set of soup forks and a solid fuel hairdryer. And inside the message said, so I'm just sending you this card instead. Well, soup forks would be useless. You could never get any soup to stay on them. And as for a solid fuel hairdryer, 
who would be bothered to get the fire lit beforehand? And would it actually work without setting fire to your hair? Both soup forks and a solid fuel hair dryer would be worthless. And that's just the word that Jeremiah used about what the people of his day were doing. He said they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. This is strong stuff. And it reminds us that our actions and choices have consequences. It's a bit like saying, if you play with fire, you will get burned. And in this case, pursuing worthless idols will not just get you nowhere, it will actually suck the life out of you. So who was Jeremiah to say such things? Unlike many of the prophets, he was actually a priest. It's, his book starts, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the Reed territory of Benjamin. He was therefore part of the establishment. And we've seen many examples of the establishment of this country in the pomp and ceremony of yesterday's proclamation of the new king. Jeremiah in his day might therefore have had much to lose by speaking out, but this did not deter him. A reason for his confidence to risk unpopularity can be seen in his understanding of his identity, set out in verses four and five in, of chapter one, where it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was not totally confident to meet this challenge, for we read in verse six, our sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah therefore had clear instructions and a reassuring statement of God's support with a bit of reinforcement in verse 17. Get yourselves ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will ter terrify you before them. Then in chapter two, Jeremiah jumps straight in and look how he presents his message. And it's a good method of giving feedback. He starts with the positive, reminding them of their past devotion to God. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. But sadly, that's as far as the positive goes. And he then rips into them for following worthless idols. And this despite all the good that God had done for them in bringing them to the promised land. Priests, prophets and people were all guilty and the land was defiled. And Jeremiah thundered, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Jeremiah can hardly contain his frustration, it seems, as he continued 
Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is not just a shame. There will be consequences. Foreign invaders are coming, he warns them. The people may think that alliances with Egypt and Assyria will help. But God says, no, this is strong stuff. But Psalm 60 reminds us, give us aid against the enemy for the help of man is worthless. We need to let God's word through Jeremiah speak to us as individuals, churches and society at large. Where have we followed worthless idols? The consequences can be that this makes us worthless. Where have we forgotten or abused our identity? Failure to appreciate who we are in Christ can disable us and also lead us to try and establish an identity in some other way. But this will not be our true identity and can leave us vulnerable to many other, often ungodly influences. The cult of celebrity seems to be stronger today than in many previous generations. And there are many who like to see themselves as influencers, telling others what to think. An area of particular concern is where the subject is not how to style our hair or our homes, but what our attitude should be to many issues, especially in a woke sense of being alert and sensitive to social issues, especially of injustice. But this can often be one-sided as to what is seen as the most important issue. I saw an example just this week. Much was made of Serena Williams's retirement from top flight tennis and of the fact that she didn't quite beat the record of Grand Slams one. I saw no mention of who holds the record. It's the Australian Margaret Court, Margaret Smith as she was. But she's been unplatformed, it seems, because in her subsequent role as a Pentecostal church pastor, she's been clear on her views on gay marriage being contrary to scripture. Now, not all Christians see it this way, and many, to try, many try to interpret scripture in another way. But to downplay her tennis achievements, which are not to do with her religious convictions, and not to interview her on the subject of tennis seems very rude to me. It's one thing to have a view oneself, another to deny other people their right to a different point of view. It was stated on Songs of Praise last week that worldwide, 80% of religious persecution is against Christians. Clearly, it doesn't all happen in countries where a non-Christian religion is dominant. Secularizing humanistic thinking can be very antagonistic to Christian beliefs yet often seemingly quiet towards other religions. Christians and the Christian church need to be very careful here. We should be at the forefront of the fight against injustice, not letting any vocal minority set the agenda, for this could make us forsake the spring of living water and in turn start digging cisterns that will not hold water. The double whammy of those two sins that Jeremiah identified, forsaking the spring of living water, digging their own systems, broken systems that cannot hold water. 
So what's to be done? Let's turn to some teaching that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount that identifies two better ways of being. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our nation faces many challenges and changes at the present. Little did I know when I started preparing this sermon quite how big the changes would be. The death of the Queen brings the need for God's people to be salt and light into sharper focus. Queen Elizabeth II made no secret of her faith in Jesus Christ and epitomized duty, decency, integrity respect, stability, and service. In an age that increasingly espouses ungodly values and practices, the broken systems of which Jeremiah spoke, the need for God's people to return to the sure foundation of God's word and to set a good example is of paramount importance. Jesus's teaching on salt and light puts two contrasting analogies together. Salt in food is mostly invisible. Light is totally apparent. The analogies are almost opposite in their strategy. There are times when the church needs not to be separate, but to be out there in the world. Salt is no use until it is out of the salt cellar. It needs to be mixing in where it makes a profound difference to the whole dish. But the salt needs to be fresh, not damp and flavourless, about which Jesus gives us a clear warning. If the salt is already bland and tasteless like the food, there's no point in adding it. It will make no change to the food. Too often it seems these days that the church is following the world, so makes little difference to it. But to be salty, we need to be standing on the word of God, made clean by Jesus and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. I've heard it said that it only takes 5% of an organization to be Christian to make a real difference to the ethos of that organization, that saltiness. People living out the gospel in obvious or not so obvious ways can do this. But the other analogy is different, it's in your face. The smallest light can penetrate the darkness, but it needs not to be blocked. Jesus is at pains to point this out. 
It needs to be on a stand, not under a bowl. We may shield it ourselves through fear or maybe some other reason, wittingly or unwittingly, but the world will also try to obscure it, as may be increasingly seen, not least from those who would try to unplatform those with whom they disagree. The world may try to get us to conform to their standards of darkness, and in which case we will need to set our light on a stand. But we need to be sure we have the light. In the next chapter, Jesus teaches, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The church needs to be careful not to be led astray by the world's values, for that would amount to putting a shroud on the lamp, obscuring its light. Wisdom is needed as to which is the appropriate strategy in any situation, salt or light. Is it confrontation, the need for clear light, or is it a need to walk with someone or some issue over a sustained period, being salt, making a real difference? There were times when Queen Elizabeth threw clear light on a situation, not least in her recent Christmas broadcast when she gave straightforward gospel messages. But no doubt there were countless times when she was the salt in situations carrying out her duties with grace, or working unseen, but making a profound difference, as many prime ministers have testified about their private audiences with her. We don't need a new therapy, a new fad, a new body even. We need to come to the spring of living water that Jeremiah pointed to. Jesus would pick up this theme some 600 years later, talking to the woman at the well. When he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, which will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And to a more general audience, he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. We need to be connected to the source. We need to hang on to the word of God. We need to discard the broken systems the world increasingly offers. The church and us as individuals need to discover or rediscover our identity in Christ. When we know who we are in God's eyes, chosen, called, deeply loved, highly favoured, greatly blessed, made in God's image, then we can better live our lives comfortable in our own skin, useful in his kingdom. My hope is that the Methodist Church can yet fulfil its calling. John Wesley said he understood that God raised up Methodism to spread scriptural holiness. We'll get nowhere unless we stand upon God's word. Isaiah put it this way, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Amen.
as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. in this podcast is adapted from recorded Zoom services held by Teambridge Methodist Circuit Coastal Section. Full videos can be viewed on their YouTube channel. Music is taken from worship audio tracks, all rights reserved. <laughs>